0: buddy and welcome to Friday Happy hour it has been a long while since uh, we've gathered here on Friday happy hour on the great American Shoreline podcast Network to have a drink and talk about something that's on our minds on the coast or on the ocean and today ladies and gentlemen it's uh, it's a it's a prime Friday happy hour day uh, because I have the privilege of of having a drink with Rear Admiral Tim Galudet, uh, who served on the USS Kitty Hawk. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have been following along in the news, you will know that the USS Kitty Hawk, uh, is going to be scrapped. She is leaving, uh, her Naval service and is going to be taken apart and repurposed into other things. Um, but this is this is the end of a very uh, illustrious naval career, and actually, Admiral Gallaudet, uh, you got to serve uh, on board this ship, and so on this show, I'm going to uh, ask Tim and learn about Tim's time. We're gonna we're gonna share some stories. Uh, I'm gonna nerd out a little bit on on the type of ship that she was. She was a mighty, mighty big aircraft carrier. Uh, I forget what you call them, mega carriers or something. There's a super carrier. She's a super carrier, and uh, mm-hmm. just a, just the, an apex machine, ladies and gentlemen. So, Tim, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, let's start off with what. Tell me, tell me what beverage uh, you would like to salute the USS Kitty Hawk with today?
1: Well, you betcha. I am drinking a loose cannon Imperial Pale Ale or India Pale Ale. Sorry. Uh, brewed up here in the state of Maryland where I'm living. And I thought, you know, the nautical theme just demanded it.
0: Fine choice, fine choice. And I am having a Manhattan uh, because uh, this vessel was, uh, well, first of all, Manhattan is a beautiful, strong, sturdy beverage. Uh, But uh, USS Kitty Hawk, I believe, was uh, constructed by the New York Shipbuilding Company. Uh, I might have that name wrong, but... um, she she hails, I believe, from New York. So uh, that's or, correct. So I am going to to salute uh, her origin there with with my Manhattan. Well, uh, let's start off here and uh, talk about just the significance of uh, the community of the Navy on the American shoreline. Um, these vessels, uh, you know, the purpose of the show, of course, is the Kitty Hawk, but the Kitty Hawk is backed up as a part is a piece of. United States Navy, which is deployed all around the American shoreline and uh, has major installations and some smaller installations, but uh, the the people, the sailors, the, the the people who are in the Navy and the support con- consultants and civilians that that back all this up are are live on the American shoreline. They are in our communities. And Tim, talk to a talk to me a little bit about. What goes through your mind uh, thinking about the Navy on the American shoreline uh, vis-a-vis the U.S. as Kitty Hawk?
1: Right, Tyler, it's exactly the case that the Navy is a part of the fabric of the American shoreline. Uh, In so many communities, there are bases nearby or adjacent, uh, and, and uh, and they are home to ships and infrastructure and sailors and civilians who work their day jobs or deploy for a period but then come back and are and fold back into the communities. So, and and this is really nothing new. It's an interesting dynamic. It's part of our, our shoreline fabric uh, since we've had a navy uh, after soon after World, or the Revolutionary War. But the, you could look at some of the big ones like Norfolk and uh, Mayport, Florida, and San Diego um, up there in the North, the Pacific Northwest, Bremerton. We have shipyards. We have naval stations and all of these are uh important parts of our national defense uh, but they're also important parts of our coastal communities
0: this is deep in our identity i mean i'm thinking about goodness i did a show with peter Ravella several a couple few years ago now uh about american maritime history mm. and you know along the 13 colonies very originally you know these were fishing Uh, oriented communities, trade-oriented communities all along the coast. And then, Tim, where you are on the Maryland shoreline, it is really ingrained because you're not far from Annapolis.
1: Right, right. You see our naval heritage and history all over the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Interestingly, a a great book about our, our early naval origins as a nation is a book called Six Frigates. I think it's by Ian Toll. And if you've ever seen one of those original six frigates in boston the USS constitution uh you know what i'm talking about and if you happen to see it go do it uh it's age of Sales, ship of the line and there's so much great uh history just with that one vessel and that and she is the origins of our modern navy and when you think about the town of boston and its historic significance through our nation's founding and and current um current existence uh, you can just see it's a great representative of the of of the navy being woven into our coastal communities tell
0: me tim uh what is the connection between the sailor in the community and the ship that the sailor serves on
1: well right so of course ships don't do what they need to do they don't can't achieve their mission without people without sailors so of course i mean that's the the primary weapon system of any ship and its people and interestingly, when we talk about competition with China and Russia, as we do now, uh, that is one area that we will always dominate uh, any other country, and that is the quality of our people and our sailors. And um, and so, and when they are off ship and they come back to the base, they're they contribute to communities. They're part of local groups, whether it be you know the the school baseball team and providing coaches, for example, or or they're they're a, provide a large economic contribution by. Um, using the various services from businesses and uh and so that there's just there every every aspect of these local communities is is i think benefits from uh these sailors and another aspect i think is important is you know any given community is is better uh when its members uh, have an ethic of service and everyone in the navy who comes back into these communities during you know during their off-duty hours has that ethic of service and And they contribute. I think they contribute in in ways that the average citizen do not uh, because of that being part of who they are.
0: No doubt. But I have to say, uh, bringing this back to the connection between uh, these individual uh, men and women and the vessel itself, you know, I do see in modern times, I'll see uh, a a lady or a a gentleman walking around with a, a, a baseball cap style hat on. With a ship insignia and it'll, you know, it'll say the, the ship name on it. And I, it's clear to me, a civilian, albeit a civilian who uh, lo- just absolutely nerds out about the Navy. <laughs> it's interesting that. to me that uh, there's this real kind of pride. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is that something that you've experienced yourself? Do you have a Kitty Huck hat, can I ask?
1: No, of course I do, and you're absolutely right about that. Everyone who's ever served on a Navy ship, in any capacity, feels to be a part of that ship, and the ship is part of them. And that's how I feel about the Kitty Hawk. I, I spent two over two years on board during two combat deployments, and uh, these were this was my family away from my family, and uh, and there's just so much that goes on there um, that that forms who you are as a person. So it's it's really special, and and it's just not me. It's my parents you know they they when you they, we saw the news about the kitty hawk well, everyone i knew uh, kind of came to me and reached out and we had a we shared a, a sort of memory or connection um so it's giving much more than the sailor it's everyone the sailors touched uh, because they know how much that ship forms them and it's a real sp- special thing i uh I, for those who've never experienced it, it um i'm it's unfortunate cuz i really i'm proud of that aspect of my naval service and i and I'm uh, grateful for it.
0: Absolutely, Tim. And uh, I think that, you know, when we were discussing before this show, before we uh, decided to sit down and have this uh, little happy hour together, uh, we were discussing how to properly frame up uh, uh, the USS Kitty Hawk, this, this mighty aircraft carrier that, that you had the pleasure of and privilege, I imagine, of serving on. Uh, and I being the Navy nerd that I am, I just immediately wanted to like frame it up in the history of like every warship ever built. And, you know, that's probably too much, but I think it would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about aircraft carriers generally and, um, their evolution into, what the Kitty Hawk was, which is a a super carrier. Why don't you take us through that? Uh, you know a little bit about what an aircraft carrier is, its its origin, and how it how we got
1: to the Kitty Hawk. Right, right. American aircraft carriers are an American uh, ingenuity, and uh, in fact, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary this year of America's first aircraft carrier, the the, the Langley, and the uh, USS Langley was launched, I believe, in May of 1922. And at the time, naval aviation was very nascent. It was really more of an experiment than anything. And they took a, I believe, an old cruiser and put a flight deck on it. And and this is when we were still using biplanes and whatnot. But uh, but then aviation grew. And at a pivotal point in World War II, it really was Pearl Harbor, uh, when our carriers became so advanced that they replaced the battleships as the the primary ship of the line. The, the the, the major assets of uh, in, in naval arsenals. And uh, of course and Americans have led the way with the technology and the operations and the and the, the tactics and the doctrine and I, I mean'm I'm, I'm proud of our Navy for all we, for having that edge and every other Navy wants to be like us. You even see China they're working on their second aircraft carrier. Uh, other nations have built, have built their one-offs, but um, we've led the way in this and we continue to do so. But interestingly, as that evolution of the technology and its application throughout World War II, then to Korea, Vietnam, uh, and then, of course, even the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, then the second invasion in Iraq, and, and so on. Um, carriers have been a part of every one of these campaigns, even the deep land campaigns, and I'll talk about that later. But uh, so it's a, and when the, the amazing part of an aircraft carrier, um, besides the complexity and the, the, the technology, is that, it is, what, four acres of sovereign U.S. territory wherever it goes. And that's, that's the idea is that this asset can go and project power and, and enforce national will and policy uh, in, in this way. Uh, to have a mo- mobile asset, sorry, you know, a dozen of them around the world that can do this is really quite something. And, um, and you see it affect history and, um, and the geopolitical landscape in major ways. Uh, so it's just quite significant. I, I don't think, I don't think we, you know, of course, in history, we've seen things like the battleship. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, still nowadays, uh, that, that remains to be the case, this national asset that the, the presidents always want to know where they are when something happens. And then you have the case going on right now with carrier strike groups uh, near Taiwan and uh, over in the uh, Mediterranean, you know, being poised for both China's aggression, possible aggression, as well as Russia's.
0: Four acres of sovereign American, did you say territory? I guess it's not soil because it's, uh, <laughs> yes. it's a flight deck. I don't know what they make that out of, but it ain't soil. <laughs> but it's steel. It's steel. <laughs> was it's a, sovereign steel. It's sovereign steel. Let's talk about, uh, so Kitty Hawk is a supercarrier, uh, which uh, is obviously an, a superlative uh, term. What um, is, is, kitty hawk the first super carrier
1: well that that term is really colloquial it's not an official naval term sorry to burst your bubble there that's Tyler. okay that's okay but, but ultimately it, it um it was uh i guess the first of its kind in terms of its size speed and capability uh the earlier carriers were uh, you know smaller slower and this was uh it also was the last of the of the conventional carriers so there was a a class of ships that including the constellation, the Ranger, that were the, these conventional carriers, the biggest, the best we ever had until we went nuclear. Um, but Kitty Hawk, pretty much, besides having a nuclear, uh, not not having a nuclear plant, was just about as capable as the nuclear carriers that followed, um, with the exception of range. You know, we'd obviously have to re- resupply fuel. But then again, um, you know, you're always limited by something. You, even if you have nuclear fuel, you're limited by the amount of supplies you might have on or ordnance, uh, if you're conducting combat operations so there's always a need to resupply something uh, but the nuclear power has its advantage um, and so and the kitty aqua is an amazing ship uh you know when you think about some of these right now very close to what the latest modern carrier has the latest carrier is the gerald ford it's 12 billion dollar warship plus plus four millions of research and development before that <laughs> so we're talking yeah. about a major investment in tax dollars and uh you know kitty hawk was really interestingly similar whereas the ford has about 4500 crew the kitty hawk had 5600 a lot more because so much less was automated uh but but still a sizable force of course uh, and this includes the the air wing when when the when the aircraft are embarked and you have a, an air wing which is is actually a separate command uh, of, of several squadrons that form together to co- create an air wing of jets and helicopters uh, all told, you you know you have there 4,500 or 5,600 5, sailors on board with that complement. Wow. The Ford was is a thousand ninety-two feet long feet army a ninety two feet long, and the Kitty Hawk is just shy of that, thirty feet shorter really. So thousand-foot warship, both have really wide beams uh, over two hundred and fifty feet for the Ford, and Kitty Hawk was a li- little wider with two hundred eighty feet. I mean these are these are giant. I mean <laughs> we're talking about four football fields of territory. You know. Um, uh, or more, really, uh, each held over uh, 70 aircraft. And you know some of these were like Kitty Hawk held F-14 Tomcats, big jets, <laughs> big, big jets. Yeah. And, um, and displacement's interesting. Well, it, it, big ship. So the Ford displaces 100,000, what they call long tons, which are about 2,100 pounds. And the Kitty Hawk was a little bit less, 8,300. I don't know exactly, but I would guess that some of the nuclear reactor shielding is the reason for the difference in displacement weight. Um, but amazingly, they're not the biggest things afloat. If, if anybody is listening and remembered the MV Ever Given that got stuck in the Suez Canal last year, that ship, these carrier, these these container ships are monsters. Uh, its displacement was 280 or 65,000 tons, so, so over double, the kitty hawk which is just extraordinary these are giant ships so you know kitty Hawk kind of combined that size mass and power but with speed modern container ships go 12 or so maybe 15 knots and uh and carriers need to get places fast and so you're always talking minimum 30 knots and the top end is classified
0: 33 knots might not sound like much if you're uh but you have to imagine this is a massive massive vehicle uh that is being propelled at 33 knots uh plus so that is incredible uh Tim great great description great rundown comparing uh the Kitty Hawk which is uh of a much older vintage made I guess she was laid down in the 50s uh completed in the early 60s we're comparing that to the Gerald Ford which uh is the latest and greatest um and she pretty much is very comparable uh which is which is interesting let's go back to her commissioning and uh, uh talk a little bit about her service history
1: right well interestingly she started out in the early 60s this is right before vietnam started ramping up and my dad was on a one of the smaller aircraft carriers called the uss von richard uh, around the same time uh, that Kitty Hawk was just getting delivered and commissioned. And yeah, he served for a time out off Vietnam. And then when the Kitty Hawk was commissioned, um, we had a very active presence. Uh, this is when the Cold War was kind of peaking. And so we were we were actively um, in, involved in the Western Pacific. Uh, so we we had Vietnam, but we also had the whole Western part of the Pacific where Russia has, you know, uh, territory and and we were constantly on patrols out there and we were we were a lot of a lot of our work was based out of Japan so Kitty Hawk went out there and did exercises and trained They're kind of preparing for either Russia or Vietnam as it was growing. There's a great picture in Wikipedia of President Kennedy visiting the Kitty Hawk and he's on the bridge there uh, with Governor Brown of California and I I've been on that bridge in fact I've been on that bridge many hours as a bridge watchstander and officer of the deck. Uh, and so that was that was the time, uh, and of course then, then Kitty Hawk started uh, um, participating in strikes into Vietnam, and, uh, and my dad knew a lot of aviators uh, that were shot down. Some were POWs, some didn't come back, uh, and that was a big background in my in my growing up. I remember having a bumper sticker on my car. It said "Fly Navy," uh, and because my dad was a, a he was in a squadron that that operated. Uh, off vietnam uh, of these aircraft called a3 sky warriors and uh, just that history was something that was always in the background of me and, and influenced me eventually to apply to annapolis because of just that whole that whole ethic of service that i was raised in that my dad uh, kind of impressed upon me not, not in a forceful way but it was more like it just sort of it kind of uh, it was infused in me Absolutely. And so, uh, yeah and i'm really you know that, that it's just need to have sailed on a ship yeah, you know, other friends of mine were on the nu- newer nuclear ships, but I, was, I, was glad. I had a real sense of connection with my dad serving on this carrier that had been out there when he was operating and had friends of his who'd flown off the ship. Um, and so there was, it was just a really interesting connection that we felt together. Um, and she, you know, the, Kitty Hawk involved in every aspect of, of really the whole Vietnam campaign. Uh, in fact, it, one one time during the the famous Tet Offensive, which some of our listeners maybe have not heard of, but a historic point in Vietnam, uh, the Kitty Hawk was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation. This is very rare for a ship to receive. Normally, you know, in the last twenty years, Presidential Unit Citations were going to things like units like you know the the 82nd Airborne Division or something involved with the major combat action in Iraq or Afghanistan, and so this was a, that's really impressive part of her, her storied history. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that kind of early part of her, her, her career was, um, was uh, something to, uh, really be proud of.
0: The presidential unit citation for exceptionally meritorious and heroic service, uh, there, um, during the Tet offensive. And that is a major, uh, moment in the Vietnam War and uh, very interesting so right in the thick of it uh, was the USS Kitty Hawk in uh, that stage of Vietnam what I find so interesting is you know you uh, in my mind uh, and you're right Wikipedia does have ladies and gentlemen go check out the USS Kitty Hawk Wikipedia page and you can read along uh, a long history we're breezing through it uh, but there is that great photograph of President Kennedy and Governor Brown on the bridge of the ship. And uh, you'll see some photographs as well of of the uh, aircraft on board during the Vietnam era. And then if you scro- scroll down, you'll see uh, photographs of decades later. And it's incredible how the aircraft equipment have evolved dramatically. I mean, you go from. Uh, little Skyhawks to F-14 Tomcats (laughs) Mm, exactly. (laughs) and then and beyond I mean I'm I guess when you were on board you probably I'd be curious to know what the aircraft complement was but um, it's really incredible that that she stood the test of time you know it's the same platform all of those years anyway let's move along Tim uh, in in the history Uh, uh, is there anything else in in the Vietnam period that you wanted to touch on or should we should we move on
1: forward no oh, there's much but really uh, it was interesting how a, a ship like this its longevity spans so many events so you have for example these strikes into vietnam and then soon years a few years after she was involved in in the refugee evacuations earning a doing humanitarian assistance work which i've done as well and then you then you go into kind of the cold war era where she was actively involved in indian ocean patrols for example to sort of counter the soviet union and then uh, all the way up into the present my time on board right after 9 11. uh for those who might not have been around then the sense of urgency in our country after the twin towers were attacked was quite high and i just completed my phd at scripps and went to the ship in october and we were participating in the very first strikes into afghanistan after 9 11. it was very novel for a ship not an aircraft carrier not to have its air wing we actually were operating as what they call it, a float forward staging base. And we had the entire uh, large complement of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment and the SOAR and and, and all the SEALs, Rangers, CIA operators. You know, they were all in there flying into Afghanistan against the Taliban right after 9-11. And I, I have to say, you know, despite all the kind of bad way Afghanistan ended, uh it it was really purposeful to be part of that effort right after uh the twin towers came down Um, and so there was that then of course the iraq invasion in 2003 we were part of that as well and and so this whole time um i was on board the ship and that was pretty heavy because of we had three aircraft carrier strike groups in the persian gulf arabian gulf pardon me and we were one of them. And so it was quite busy shipping-wise, plus all the sealift ships that were putting all the armor and equipment for the Army in 2003. And, uh, and our ship was there when we, when we flew those first strikes into uh, Iraq as well. And uh, there were tomahawk launches going on. It was, it was quite an exciting time. We could probably spend an episode just on that night. I'll never forget it. It was the day after my birthday in 2003. Um, and I was on the bridge of the ship. Uh, but then afterwards, you know, the, the Kitty Hawk was a part of um, a number of just national efforts, whether it be um, Southern Watch, for example, um, pardon me, not Southern Watch, um, uh, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom as they continued. And um, and then up into her decommissioning, uh, just ser- serving the Navy proudly, deploying to the Western Pacific in exercises and supporting uh, efforts, for example, like like I said, the Iraq and Afghanistan efforts. So just all, all together, uh, uh, a, a wonderful warship with incredible longevity and uh, a remarkable amount of service to our nation.
0: I think at this moment I'm going to order myself a, another Manhattan uh, because <laughs> uh, the old Kitty Hawk deserves, I think, a, another one. And uh, because I and I also I just got to go back to um, your experience on board and. Um, which which was a long time um you spent a long time years tim uh uh on the kitty hawk so i i would really first of all just love to get your first impressions when you came aboard the first time and when you saw her the first time uh knowing that you would be uh stationed on the ship
1: right i was in the arabian sea we had all those special operations helicopters on board flying strikes into afghanistan and i remember i came in on a what they call the uh the C2, the carrier onboard delivery, a twin prop plane that lands on the carrier and does a landing with a hook on the on the arresting cables um, and I would come from, I think Bahrain is my route. I, was, I went there from there to the ship in the Arabian Sea and uh, off the coast of Pakistan. And I remember my first day, I got lost <laughs> and I had been, I'd been on a big ship, you know, I'd been on an amphibious assault ship, which is about an 800 foot long ship. Uh, but still, you know, it was, it just takes a bit of time to navigate around a neighborhood like that because it was about the size of a neighborhood. Um, but, uh, you know, really quickly, I what I liked is we just had such a sense of purpose. Our captain at the time, Tom Hile, was just a very great positive aviator decorated from his time in flying combat missions in the first Gulf War. And I loved him. Uh, so I was standing bridge watches with him. And everybody in the crew, we just really bonded and had that sense of purpose and it felt good it really felt good to be a part of a team that you know America's team out there uh, doing what the nation called us to do and uh, so yeah man, And it, it was like you said I lived on the ship for two years I uh, it was stationed it was stationed in Japan and my family couldn't come out at the time so that was my home for two and a half years except for the times I took leave to see my family um, so sad and lonely to be away from my, my, my wife and then one-year-old daughter but uh, but it was really purposeful and um, the other part it might be worth mentioning is I have to admit, you know, it, it was also very stressful as an officer of the deck. You're in charge of the bridge. Uh, when the captain, you drive the ship, you make all the decisions about whether aircraft can land or not where, where you turn, how fast you go. Uh, we would do underway replenishments where we park or we drive at about 12 knots alongside a, a replenishment ship with only about 150 feet between us for hours, trying to transfer, transferring fuel ordnance bombs and and supplies and uh and that just driving a ship under those conditions or driving a ship during combat uh aircraft um, missions every every moment was a potential chance to kill somebody basically you know if, if you turned the ship while an aircraft was on final approach it, it would crash and you you'd, you'd be responsible for the death of a, of a pilot and crew you if you remove the ship while well, they were moving aircraft whether on the flight deck or in the hangar bay below uh you, you the ship could ultimately cause an aircraft to, to roll basically and crush a sailor there, just there were so many things and rules and procedures you had to follow in a very precise way uh with this to operate the ship safely and not hurt anybody um, just so many things that were so dangerous about that ship and yeah. amazingly amazingly you know we we had um with the exception of a few of the aviators who were, um, either, um, uh, received, uh, uh, I think I, I, I finally were shot down. We had a couple of aircraft that were shot down in the Iraq war, uh, Iraq war. And then, um, it was probably anti-aircraft missiles, I believe. And it's, it's in the ship's history as well as, um, I don't think anybody, though none of the sailors on the ship, I think they are, you know, that t- with all that going on, um, I, that was my mission. I just never wanted to be responsible for hurting or, or injuring or killing a sailor because I, because of carelessness on my part as, as driving the ship. And that was, I, th- I thought about that every day and every second of every day. And I'm, I'm thankful that I I uh, was able to you know, pull that off.
0: High pressure, wartime uh, command situation there. Um, and uh, could you t- talk a little bit more about your responsibilities on board? I, I know by this point in your career, you, you mentioned you had just received your phd so I'm, I'm curious what what uh if you could talk about what your uh, command responsibilities were
1: oh yeah so my specialty in the navy was a, a meteorology and oceanography officer and so my job on the ship was to run a division of aerographers that pre- forecast weather for the embarked air wing and a very important mission because it's not like you have the weather channel out there in the, right. in the Ara- arabian sea and uh and everything is everything is driven by weather on an aircraft carrier and uh you know not just the weather but even the sea state uh it, i have been on on an aircraft carrier where we were rolling you know 15 to 20 degrees because of, we had a, a, a an eight foot swell on the quarter on the port quarter in, in the indian ocean i mean that's that's what you just got to think about everywhere and when you're rolling 15 to 20 degrees you cannot do flight operations <laughs> you know it just doesn't yeah. work and so uh There's all these reasons that you need to have really good weather predictions and um, that was my big job but of course i had a handy crew of aerographers that that did that practically and my job was just to manage and supervise them and so therefore what most of the officers did is they stood watches i had been qualified as a surface warfare officer and an officer of the deck on a previous ship and i love ship driving and uh, so i i I spent most of my time on the bridge eight hours a day two separate four-hour watches driving the ship in all sorts of those evolutions whether it be again aircraft flight operations underway replenishments just um uh, we did exercises with other ships in format close formations and uh just really very interesting type a lot of it in coming in and out of port uh, they call that sea and anchor detail and I, we'd always come into the tokyo Wan, the tokyo bay and i always remember coming home and you know coming into the tokyo Wan and that's a really tight navigation situation because you have so many other ships that are coming in and out at the same time. And, uh, it's, it's very much precision maneuvering, but, um, but really enjoyable from a Mariner's perspective.
0: I, uh, I, I bet. And Tim, I've, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the past year or so, and I'm just grinning that you would, uh, you would find yourself of course, up on the bridge. Uh, in those moments, a uh, lot of responsibility, a uh, lot of high pressure. But uh, totally, I get why you would want to be there. It's a it's a huge ship, 5,600 sailors on board, and and pilots and uh, officers like yourself, uh, all doing different jobs. Uh, everyone busy, um, but that's a lot of people. It's a it's a huge community. Actually, um, can you talk about? The lifestyle, I mean, obviously it's a long time. You, you can't be at red alert 24 um, seven. So between um, between watches, uh, were, were there times to socialize and get to know uh, your fellow shipmates?
1: Oh yeah, uh, that's the biggest part of the ship is your your friends, the crew and your, your shipmates. Your shipmates are, they become shipmates for life. And, and that's a, that was really a terrific part of the, the experience. So, you know, the, you, you do have some downtime, you know, and of course there's a lot of kind of a social life, if you will, in the officer's wardroom, which I would, I would, where I would dine and, and kind of hang out with friends. And when, and when I, a few times I had that time you know, avail, available, you know, when you're a bridge watch tender, those, those times are few and far between, but ultimately you had that and, uh, and interesting, you know, aircraft is so big, uh, there's there, I'm trying to remember. I, I know there's a couple gyms on board. I made sure of that I, I made sure to use the gyms because, uh, just to stay fit and it helped me stand watch better to, to exercise and blow off steam after any watch. Um, and then, uh, there's interesting, a lot of my memories of, of socializing wasn't on the ship. Cause again, you're working when you're on an, an American ship for sure. But, uh, it was the port calls. I loved, uh, like for example, Hong Kong, I, I think I went to, we went to Hong Kong once I've uh, been to Hong Kong several other times, and uh, the port call in Hong Kong is fantastic. My wife m- met me, Karen, and we had just three days of just really great time together. Uh, we also had pulled into um, Singapore, and that was a really fascinating port. And I had a lot of fun with my friends there. The interesting memory I have of Hong Kong is my crew of aerographers. They uh, were kind of out and about in tan- town, pardon me. And Jackie Chan was filming Rush Hour one, two, or three—I forgot which one—but uh-huh. they they kind of kind of happened upon Jackie Chan and they got a picture with him and an autograph. And I was I was so stoked because I wanted my sailors to have a good time. They worked so hard underway, and they were just like they were just like grinning ear to ear when they, when they showed me the picture. And I was just really happy for him.
0: That is cool. So, um, and this is a bit of a of a of a nerd question. So you'll have to forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, but. When the ship does uh, do a, a come into port and uh, is the whole crew uh, allowed to go ashore and, you know, take some time off or do, do some people stay on? How does that work? I've got to imagine you got to keep some folks on board to work on the ship or whatever you're doing there
1: well absolutely true and good point that's something if you're not in the navy you don't really know but you you have to keep someone a large part of the crew probably a third maybe i'm guessing here i don't remember but to make sure you know have 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 a a force there in case we have to the ship has to respond to any kind of self-defense or uh, force protection sort of measure you also have to be prepared for accidents fires and and the like so there's a, a sizable crew there excuse me that has to remain and the way they work it on a ship is they have they have like duty sections so like during a given day in port, one duty section if you're assigned to one you'll stay on the ship and, and you'll have a watch and I I was at what they call a command duty officer so I was the senior person on the ship during an import period like the captain which was a lot of responsibility I will tell you but uh and then um and then the everyone who's not in that duty section gets to go on Liberty and and so you you kind of rotate in i remember i forgot how it worked but i think i got I had duties my duty section in hong kong like the very first day and then i got to stay with karen every day after like the three the three nights after that and that's just kind of standard procedure in any port and um yeah i did that in my other ships too and uh that's just uh, how you keep a ship safe uh enjoy liberty too
0: well there you go ladies and gentlemen it's never as easy as just everyone you know you just you pull into port and everyone runs off and, you know, finds a girl or whatever, <laughs> like you get in the movies. You know, you got to leave. You know, there's a compliment on board to, to make sure that the ship's in safe safekeeping uh, during that period of time. Uh, Tim, uh, I I've, I've disrupted our flow a little bit, um, and I I don't want to uh, wrap up uh, this story period of time. So I should just open it up to you really quickly if you have any additional you know, personal stories that you might want to share.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, well, there's so many, uh, personal and professional. Again, uh, very fulfilling to be a part of such an important warship uh, during such important times. Uh, again, uh, you know, everybody will debate what any given sort of um, evolution the ship is involved with or campaign. Um, for me, it was the Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom. Uh, but ultimately, that, that's, that wasn't my job to make a policy decision. My job was to execute policy, and I was proud that, that we were able to do that and keep everyone on board safe and while we were doing it, because that wasn't easy. Um, I'm also proud of the, the experience, like I shared, my dad having um, not only served on an aircraft carrier, but for me off Vietnam, but also my dad was a big World War II history buff, and uh, and I... I, I, I kind of again I infused on me too into me and I uh, being a being a part of a that long storyline the hundred years of American aircraft carrier experience um, and, and mind you you know an aircraft being at the top of our, our nation's you know military might it was um, really I'm very proud of that experience and then again I, I also have a lot of shipmates that I stay in touch with and those personal connections uh, they last forever when you're part of an experience and, and, a, and a thing such as the uss kitty hawk um yeah i'm grateful really you know it, it, it could have been uh this happens to many i could have gone not gone any farther uh, after the kitty hawk it not promoted beyond lieutenant commander uh, it was close because getting a phd before that left me away from the real navy for a while and, and i was almost not gonna get promoted i was worried about that basically but the tour on the kitty hawk helped really helped seal the deal. But even so, if I had not, you know, I could sit there proud and say, you know, I had this great experience, and my career was worth something if I had just ended it then. So that's, that's part of what what it was, I think, to have uh, to be a part of the USS Kitty Hawk. And I think everyone who has ever been with her and sailed on her uh, feels the same way
0: well tim it's just a pleasure to hear you talk about the uss kitty hawk and your service aboard her Uh, she sounds like she was a wonderful ship and that you're not alone that there are thousands and thousands and thousands probably tens of thousands of uh, retired and maybe even some uh still uh still in service uh who will look back fondly on this ship, uh, which is, as I I said, uh, at the start of the show, uh, is going to be taken down and scrapped, and uh, will no longer be an aircraft carrier anymore. Um, But it doesn't mean we will forget uh, her history. Uh, The Navy is great about remembering its history and celebrating it. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, the Navy is—it's—it's an organization built on tradition, and uh, there's no doubt that the USS Kitty Hawk added to a great line—a great line in the U.S. Navy, of uh, ships and sailors and the American shoreline, uh, American communities coming together in service of the country, and. Uh, Uh, It's a a tale that goes back, I think, to the founding of the country, pretty much, (laughs) Um, and continues on to this day. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for taking time today to talk to me and our listeners here on Friday Happy Hour about the USS Kitty Hawk. It has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Oh, the pleasure has been mine, Tyler. Thank you for being so interested in coming up with this idea. And looking forward to uh, raising a glass with you uh, next time.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, everybody.